Welcome to Kevin Connors Podcast. In this series, Kevin presents a summary of his best-selling book, The Foundations of Christian Doctrine. Visit kevinconnor.org for details about where to purchase this popular textbook. Well, good evening, everybody. How many have been here for the total four Sundays? Congratulations, you've done wonderful. So, uh, personally, as a speaker here, I want to thank you for being such a good, intelligent bunch and uh, easy to feed and everything like that because, as I often say, that preaching and teaching is like cooking. It takes hours to prepare a meal and then it's scuffed up in about 10 or 15 minutes and takes years to prepare what I've been teaching you. And it's gone in a few minutes, but uh, it's easy to feed hungry people. So thank you for being a good bunch. And also, Peter's not here, but I want to thank Peter for the excellent notes he's done and the diagrams he's done uh, to help us on our session. All right, Peter, not, not here, but this is for you. All right, now for our last couple of sessions tonight, and uh, we'll make some uh, time for uh, several questions at the end, hopefully. Okay, so uh, what we've been doing just in the eight sessions, and uh, let me say this by way of introduction, over, over my many, many years, I used to teach in Bible college 43 different books of the Bible, 33 of the Old Testament books I used to teach, and about uh, so many in the New Testament, uh, 43 books, uh, that's, you know, expositions, and then uh, I did the 66 books of Old Testament, New Testament survey. Uh, but after all the teaching I've done, uh, after all these years at my time of life, if anybody asks me, what do you think are the most important subjects that anybody should really have? You know what my, my conviction is now? I believe sound theology and sound hermeneutics. And don't let the word hermeneutics fri- uh, frighten you. simply means inter- uh, principles of interpreting the word. So uh, sound theology and sound hermeneutics to me is like a coin. Uh, with two sides. Every coin has two sides. Your theology determines your hermeneutics and your hermeneutics determines your theology. And uh, whatever you teach on the Bible, uh, whether it's the books of the Bible or anything like that, underlying and undergirding it is your theology, right or wrong. Everything I teach comes out of my theology, hopefully right and not too wrong, okay? Though I don't have all the answers. So uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this eight uh, condensed sessions on, on theology. How many of you have got something out of it? And I uh, hope you enjoy our final sessions tonight. All right, let's go through the eight sessions, uh, just referring what we've done. So session number one, we looked at divine revelation, the scriptures, foundation of everything we, we say and believe, and uh, what governs our life and practice is what's in the Bible. And then number two, second session, we did the God of the Bible. There's so many gods and people believe in different gods, but is he the God of the Bible? And that's what we have to check out. Uh, number three, on the realm of the angels, we looked at the first creation that God made. Angelic, uh, a question just was brought to my attention. I'll try and answer it while I'm here. Uh, there seemed to be a little bit of misunderstanding or confusion uh, over angels and demon spirits. Okay, I can only tell you briefly what I said that night. Uh, there's a difference of opinion. It's one of those things that probably won't be settled until Jesus comes or we see Jesus. But this is how I understand it. I believe angelic spirits. And the reason I've come to this conclusion is that uh, I've gone through every reference in the total Bible on angels. And I've gone through every reference in the total Bible on demons, Satan and demonology. So this is why they ended up that I believe they are two different uh, created uh, groups angelic beings being spirit beings, they could assume a human body if God sent them on a mission when they appeared to Jacob and uh, Moses and and different ones in the Old Testament. They uh, temporarily assumed a human body. But demon spirits uh, seem, the more I've studied it, demon spirits seem to be a different creation, uh, maybe a pre-Adamic race. As I said, some of those things will sort out when Jesus comes. Uh, and uh, they always seek to inhabit either a human body or an animal body, remember? And the case I gave her that night was uh, when Jesus cast out the 2,000 swine, uh, no, 2,000 demons, uh, and they wanted to go into the pigs. Rather than be disembodied, they'd rather have an animal body because they needed a body to express their evil nature. And uh, I said uh, humorously that night, that's where we get deviled ham 
because the, de- uh, the pigs didn't want to be demon-possessed. They'd rather commit suicide. Anyway, so just uh, briefly on that. So one of those things we'll find out. Some believe that angels and demon spirits are one and the same thing. I don't myself personally. Okay, number four, we dealt with Satan and demonology and the original sinner in heaven. And then last week we dealt with the creation of man, uh, the masterpiece of God's creation and the entrance of sin and the entrance of sin necessitated a redeemer. And then we looked at uh, uh, our final session last week was the Christ of God. And I gave you eight reasons why I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his miraculous uh, virgin birth, his miraculous sinless life, his miraculous uh, ministry, his miraculous death by crucifixion, uh, his miraculous burial, his body did not decay, his miraculous resurrection, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again, and then his miraculous ascension and hallelujah, his miraculous second coming again. Uh, As I said, no man, no founder of any religion, Buddhism, uh, Mohammedism, whatever, name them all, no one can compare with our incomparable Christ. Amen, you can say amen. And so look at all the world religions and all the world uh, founders of religions and you want to follow them, your choice. But I've chosen by God's grace to follow Jesus. None can compare with him. Hallelujah, everybody say that, hallelujah. All right, so our final session tonight, number seven, we want to look at Christ's work of atonement or the word redemption, if you like, and then uh, finish up on eternal states on heaven and hell. Okay, I'd like you to turn your Bible by way of introduction here uh, to letter A, and we'll try and be pretty systematic here, hope not too dead. Uh, Daryl asked me why I... He offered me two bottles of water. I said, well, you only have two bottles if the preacher is dry. So he's given me one. So whatever that means. Okay. All right. I'd like you to turn to a couple of the scriptures here. Uh, And under letter A, we've got the work of Christ. Okay. The work of Christ. Um, Reen, darling, could you get me my four eyes, please? Uh, They're in the middle of the thing there. Okay. John chapter 4. Now, as we go through these uh, several scriptures, thank you, darling. As we go through these several scriptures, uh, uh, we're not going to read them all, of course, but uh, several of them. You'll find that when Jesus came here to the earth and when he uh, was 30 years of age and was water baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him, Jesus was very conscious of a work that he came to do. Uh, and that's very, really important. So Jesus was conscious of the work he came to do. So let's uh, read John chapter 4. And the verses we want is down in verse 34. Uh, and Jesus is talking to the disciples here. And he said uh, to them, uh, My food or my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. If you do mark your Bible, I suggest you underline two words there, will and work. So my food or my meat is to the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus was conscious. He came to do the will of God. And all through his life we know, uh, not my will, but your will be done. So he was conscious. He came to do the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. And to finish his work. And so this is what I believe actually happened, that way back in eternity or way back in the councils of the Godhead, uh, in the event of the fall of man, uh, the whole plan of redemption, God, uh, you know, take it reverently, God didn't have a sort of a nervous breakdown and say, oh, man has sinned, mess up our plan, what are we going to do? And God didn't go into a panic. The whole plan of redemption was there. So uh, uh, God wasn't caught napping when man sinned. So when Jesus came, he was conscious, he was uh, given what I sort of call a job description. And so uh, his will is his work, his work is his will. Uh, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Go over to uh, uh, chapter 5 and verse 17, chapter 5 verse 17, where Jesus said here, My father has been working until now. And I have been working. So the Father is working, the Son is working. We are now what we would say in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit is at work. But the Father worked, the Son is working, and now in our time, the Holy Spirit is working. And then uh, John chapter 17 and verse 4. 
One of the key thoughts running through the Gospel of John, John chapter 17 and verse 4. And uh, Jesus, just before his crucifixion, he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So way back in eternity, he's like the Father gave the Son a job description. Uh, I want you to go to earth. And uh, in the job description, it would involve his incarnation, his sinless life, uh, the revelation of the Father, the ministry in word and deed, the crucifixion, the burial, uh, the resurrection, the ascension, the glorification, his exaltation, his mediatorial ministry, and his coming again, and final judgment. So that was like a job description that the, the Father gave to the Son. And on the, on the cross in John 19, verse 30, you've got it there, uh, Jesus said, it is finished. So Christianity, true Christianity, is built on a finished work. There's nothing we can do uh, to add to that. Our works, works of the flesh, uh, our works are sinful, but Jesus finished the work and the work of redemption. So he was conscious of that uh, work here. All right, so the work of redemption. All right, now under B, letter, uh, letter B, I want uh, to spend a little bit of time on this, and I want you to think along with me theologically here, because I said I believe theology should underline all our preaching and teaching uh, and witnessing and so forth. Necessity of the atonement. Now, I want you to sort of bear with me as I just comment on each of these words, and I've given you sort of a diagram. Uh, it might be even be on the PowerPoint here, but you've got the diagram in your notes there. So word number one is holiness. Uh, word number two is law. Uh, number three, transgression. Uh, four is wrath, or wrath, so say overseas. Uh, number five, sinfulness, and six, death, and then number seven, love. So I want to sort of uh, comment on those words a little because they're very important when we're looking at the work of Christ. Okay, now up the top of your diagram, there are words I didn't uh, sort of put down, but they're there. Uh, first of all, if we can just see here, we have on one side, we have God the Creator, who is also the lover. God so loved the world, uh, God is love, and God so loved the world, he is the lover. Then opposite, on the, right, uh, the other side, we have man, who is the creature. So God created, let us make man in our image, as we saw last week. Uh, in the image of God, he created man. So we have God the creator, man the creator. Now, in order for there to be harmony between God and man between the creature, the, the creator and the creature, or the lover and the loved, there must be law. Otherwise, the creature becomes lawless. And we saw this last week. So the law of God. And so God gave Adam and Eve one law, as we saw last week. Uh, you can eat of all the trees of the Garden of Eden. The only tree you're not to eat of is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, for in the day you eat, there are penalties. So there was a law between, and, and as I said, if Adam and Eve ha hadn't disobeyed and bombed out and we went through those steps, just the attack on the Word of God, the attack on the Word, if, if Adam and Eve hadn't have disobeyed the Word, uh, Adam and Eve could still be living because they, the tree of life was not forbidden them. It was given, uh, they could have eaten of it. It was the mercy of God, actually, that uh, they didn't eat of the tree of life because uh, in Genesis chapter 3 it says, And now lest man put forth his hand and take and eat of the tree of life and live forever. God drove out the man. And if Adam and Eve had have eaten of the tree of life and lived forever, they would have lived forever in an unredeemable state. So it was the mercy of God that put the cherubim and the flaming sword there that turned every which way to prevent them from going to the tree of life. And uh, we can just uh, imagine if Adam and Eve, because we have no record, the Garden of Eden was destroyed till the flood, but they would go back to the garden and, uh, oh, if only we could get back to the tree of eternal life and eat of that. But there was a cherubim and flaming sword that turned every which way, guarding the tree of life. And they would know that the only way he can get back to the tree of life is we have to get through the flaming sword, the cherubim with that flaming sword. That would mean death. Okay, that's what happened. So it was the mercy of God that drove them outside the garden. So, so we have... God the creator, the lover, and man the creature, the loved, and the law of God. There must be law, otherwise we have a lawless universe and lawless crea cre uh, creatures. All right, the second uh, word here is the, uh, 
the holiness of God. Now go down to there, the holiness of God against the sinfulness of man. Now as we saw last week, there was attack on the word, and so the holiness of God is against the sinfulness of man. Now as we'll see, sin is transgression of the law. You've got that on your note there. God is perfectly holy, Isaiah 57, verse 15, Isaiah 6, verse 3, and God says, I want you to be holy as I am holy, 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 thrice holy, the, the seraphim say in Isaiah's vision, uh, God is absolute holiness. Now, number two we've uh, done is the law, and the law of the Lord is perfect. You know, when people attack the law, and I think a lot of the lawlessness that's in society today, some of it has come from the church from a misunderstanding as we did that uh, Sunday on, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. In other words, is grace lawlessness? Well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Well, what do you mean by grace? Is grace lawlessness? No, there's a misunderstanding between the ceremonial law and the moral law as we uh, dealt with in that uh, interview there. So the law of God, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law, uh, and, and Paul says, uh, the law is holy, the commandment holy, just and good. So Adam was under one law. All right, number three, the third word we've got there is transgression. And that is, sin is transgression of the law, or in other words, sin is lawlessness. So as we saw last week, uh, the serpent came in to attack the word and get them off of the ground of, of faith and obedience onto the ground of unbelief and disobedience or from the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness from obedience to lawlessness. That was the thing. So sin is transgression of the law. Now, number four, word number four, the wrath of God. Now, I want you to listen carefully to me on this. Um, let's turn over first of all to Romans chapter... Uh, one, uh, yeah, Romans chapter 1 is there. Romans chapter 1. Now, I want you to notice that in the epistle uh, to the Roman church, the word love is never used until we get to chapter 5. One of the key words between Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 is the word wrath. So just bear with me and think along with me on this. Okay, so Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Verse 18, I'm reading from New King James here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Okay, just uh, keep th th that in mind. Chapter 2 and verse 5. Or we'll read verse 4 and 5 just to lead in a bit of context here. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, pardon me, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, the wrath of God. Go to verse 8 or verse uh, 7. Uh, Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And then uh, let's go to chapter 4. And verse uh, 15, chapter 4, verse 15. Yeah, these scriptures are on your outline there. All right, verse 15 of Romans 4, he says, Because the law works wrath. The law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the moment Adam sinned, just to use very human language, God is torn between the wrath of God and the love of God. The wrath of God or the love of God, because the law works wrath. And Adam broke the law, sin is transgression of the law. So now as you've got on your diagram, you have the wrath of God. So now here we are between the holiness of God and the love of God. Uh, the holiness of God and the love of God, but the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Now, how many, and I'd like you to respond one way or the other to me in this. I often hear preachers say, and uh, 
you know, because I think uh, my main, one of my main areas of gifting is a little bit of sound theology. How many would say that could be true? Uh, how many have heard preachers say now, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin? How many think that's a good sound statement, hands up? How many are not going to put their hands up? How many are not going to let me catch you? It's a very incomplete statement, and it's very poor theology. Let me give you the real theologies, because you see, average Australian, because we preach that, and often say that people, it doesn't matter how bad you've been, hey, I don't say those things, go to Calvary. What's Jesus on the cross for? Doesn't matter how wicked you are, hey, qualify. Doesn't matter how bad you've been, God loves a sinner, he loves you, he doesn't like what you're doing but he, he loves you. Okay, poor theology. Listen to sound theology. <laughs> okay, God loves the sinner. He hates the sin, but if the sinner does not repent of his sin, he's going into a lost eternity. Is that sound theology? Okay, so you often hear preachers just say, say poor theology, faulty theology, incomplete theology. God loves the sinner. He hates the sin. But if you don't repent of his sin, because you can't separate, sort of put the sin over you and say, oh, I love you as a sinner. In fact, I, God could have said that to Adam and Eve. I love you so much, I'm going to take you into heaven. Uh, don't worry about your sin. You know, I'm bursting with love. No, 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 no. Sin has to be dealt with because of the holiness of God. So it was the holiness of God against the sinfulness of men. Okay? So sinfulness of men, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as we looked at last week, by one man's disobedience, all were constituted sinners. All right, then the next word we've got here is death. Okay, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So uh, sin brings wages. Wages of sin is death. All right, now... Uh, using very human terminology here, here we are, God sort of has this problem. God is holy, God is love, and how do we balance out or reconcile the love of God and the holiness of God? Now let me ask you a question again, and please respond. I enjoy catching you now and then. Okay, how many believe that Calvary is a revelation of the love of God. Oh, you bunch of chickens. Okay. How many believe Calvary is a revelation of the holiness of God? How many don't know what to believe? Okay. Calvary is a revelation of both, but which comes first, holiness or love? Wonderful. Pat yourself on the back. A plus. Your answer is holiness because the reason Jesus is dying on the cross, see, this is what we're talking about tonight, Christ's work of atonement. The reason Jesus is on the cross, he's being judged for our sin. He's taking our sin, our sickness, our disease, our, our curse, our death, everything that Adam brought, Jesus is taking on himself to uphold the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. So Calvary is first a revelation of the holiness of God, then the love of God. And you see, many preachers, sorry because they, they haven't been to this class, don't tell them that. But a lot of preachers are not good in sound theology. And so they often present incomplete theology, faulty theology, uh, and emphasize this part against the other. So Calvary is a revelation of the holiness of God and the love of God. So this is like God's problem, okay? I love Adam and Eve, I love mankind, I love the sinner, but I can't save the sinner at the expense of my holiness. So how do I maintain holiness and yet give love? That's the thing, okay? This is where we come now to the atonement. I want you to turn, uh, if you've got your Bible still open to uh, Romans now. You're doing all right there? Thinking along with me? All right, now, this is the first mention of love in Romans. So chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 all deal with the wrath of God. But let's go to um, Romans 5, and we'll pick up in verse, uh, uh, verse 6. 
Romans 5 verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet per, uh, perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But here it is, and I like old King James on this also. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love, New King James says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God. So when Jesus hung on the cross and he became sin for us, which I can't understand, I can't comprehend when, when uh, God took the sin of the world and Jesus became the sacrifice for us and took our sin, our sickness, our disease, our death, our the curse, crowned with thorns, which all came about through the curse on Adam and Eve uh, and their disobedience, uh, when that fell on Christ. That was the judgment of God. That was the wrath of God. God is too holy to look upon sin. But now sin has been dealt with and the holiness of God has been maintained. And uh, let, let me just say what I believe. There's a distinction between righteousness and holiness. Holiness is what God is. Righteousness is holiness in action against sin. Let me say that again. So holy, God is holy. So holiness... Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. But righteousness is the holiness of God in action against sin. Sin must be dealt with. So I, I, I never like to hear preachers, it really bothers me to tell the truth, preachers making jokes or light about sin. I say, hey, don't do it. Go to Calvary. If you know what sin really means to God, go and see what happened to Jesus on the cross. You don't make light of sin. Sin drove Jesus to the cross. Now, after sin has been dealt with, the righteousness of God is upheld, the holiness of God is maintained, God commends his love towards us. He commends. He doesn't force, us on it, force it on us. He commends. That's what we do when we present the gospel, but let's pre present a balanced gospel. All right, now, so let's hold. Uh, one, one more I want to give you. You've got it on your notes there. Let's turn over to John's gospel, uh, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and I'll read it from uh, uh, the regular translations, and I want to read it from the Amplified. And uh, this, is, this is something, and you know, this is, uh, this is me being a theologian, I guess. Um, let's go to John chapter 3. And uh, we'll read verse 16, and I'd say many, 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 many people, most Christians, true Christians, know this verse off by heart. But as we read this verse, I want you to notice that the verse is often taken out of its passage context. It's a shock, but listen to it. Okay, so John 16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How many can say amen? We all know that scripture. But let's take it in its context. Verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. So we say, oh, God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Just, just hang on a minute. Okay, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. If you mark your Bible, the word condemn or condemnation is used four times in the passage context. Notice it again. I'll read that bit again. So we know John 3.16, but verse 17. Oh, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn. Just read it. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. See, Adam brought condemnation. Romans chapter 5, we dealt with last week. By one man's disobedience, condemnation came upon all men. By one man's obedience, justification is made available. 
So when Adam sinned, condemnation came. Guilt, fear, condemnation. They tried to hide themselves. They got into the uh, Maya department, fig leaf bikini department there. Oh, sorry. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is coming into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. So what we're doing with the gospel, we're wanting people to come out from under the condemnation and guilt that they're already under. And so you can come out from that and accept the Lord Jesus Christ because he took your sin and sickness and everything like that. And he now commends his love towards you. That's what we're saying. And then John chapter 3 and verse 36 is uh, on your notes there, John 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he, that believe, that he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but listen to it, but the wrath of God abides on him. Wow, what do you do with that? Now, amplified, and that's why it's so loud. Verse 17, God did not send his Son into the world in order to judge, to reject, to condemn, or to pass sentence on the world, but the world might find salvation and be made safe and sound through him. He who believes on him, who clings to, trusts in, relies on him, is not judged. He who trusts in him never comes up for judgment for him. There is no rejection, no condemnation. He, he incurs no damnation. But he who does not believe, not cleave to, rely on, trust in him, is judged already. He's already been convicted, has already received his sentence because he has not believed on and trusted in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He is condemned for refusing to let his trust rest in Christ's name. And we dealt with this last week, that the unpardonable sin, the sin of unbelief. Because the serpent got Adam and Eve off the ground of faith and obedience under the ground of unbelief and disobedience. And then the last one from John chapter 3 Amplified. And he who believes on, has faith in, clings to, relies on the Son as now, now possesses eternal life. But whoever disobeys, is unbelieving toward, refuses to trust in, disregards, is not subject to, the Son will never see or experience life. But instead, the wrath of God abides on him. God's displeasure remains on him. His indignation hangs over him continually. I mean, frightening words. So, condemnation came by Adam's disobedience. The only way people can come out from condemnation is to come and accept Christ. God commends his love to us. But remember, Calvary dealt with our sin. All right, now, time is moving like one thing. All right, now, let's go to, let us see. Everybody understand what I've been doing there? So, Calvary is a revelation, first of the holiness of God, then of the love of God. So the death of Jesus, he takes our sin, sickness, disease, death, and the curse, everything like that. And when God's holiness was upheld and his righteousness maintained, then God could commend his love. So on the death side of the cross, that's the wrath of God. Jesus suffered the wrath of God. On the resurrection side, we commend the love of God. All right, let us see. We'll just uh, refer to this here briefly. Uh, under letter C, we have shadows of the atonement. So from Adam through to Moses, so if you can just uh, think of the famous timeline that they use there, Adam, Moses, and Jesus. So from Adam to Moses, we have many, many pictures of the atonement. The first one we would have implied is that when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God must have killed an innocent animal. We don't have specific verse on it for those who get exacting on this. But he clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skin. Now, let me ask you a question here. How many believe that Adam and Eve are going to be in heaven? How many don't believe? How many are not sure? How many would like to know? Okay, the answer is I believe they will be in heaven. You say, why, Kevin? Okay, hang on. Okay, thank you. Thanks for asking. All right, so now, when Adam and Eve sinned, fear, guilt, condemnation, they dread the presence of God, so they run into the fig leaf <laughs> department and get these beautiful fig leaves. Uh, I want you to turn over to a, a verse in Isaiah chapter 64, 60. 
Uh, Isaiah 64, that's right. And uh, again, most preachers <laughs> only half quote this verse. They miss the, uh, miss the glorious truth in the last part. Okay, what did they say? Um, yeah, Isaiah 64 and verse 6. And it says, verse 6, 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, plural, are like filthy rags. How many have heard that verse? Okay. But have you heard the last part? We do, we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now, I've heard preachers, and I've been guilty of it myself till I read it properly. Oh, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Yeah, true. But what about this part? We all fade as a leaf. Now, I began to think of that. When Adam and Eve lost their garment of light and discovered they were naked, they ran into the garden and got hold of a fig leaf. Now, what do you think would have happened to that fig leaf in due time? It would have faded. We all do fade as a leaf. And you see, the fig leaf was a self-made covering. They were doing something to make themselves presentable to God. We've sinned, we've bombed out, we've disobeyed the word, we've got to do something. And so let's cover up our nakedness at this beautiful fig leaf. And, you know, most of the pictures you see of Adam and Eve today, they've got this beautiful fig leaf. Well, it would have faded because it was self-righteousness a self-made covering to make themselves presentable, desperate to be accepted of God. And so they made a self-made covering. Now, when God came on the scene and said, Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. He just wanted him to confess it. He said, well, I was hiding behind the tree. I was afraid, fear. And God took an innocent animal after going through the who, what, way, when and where, who told you were naked, have you eaten of the tree? And of course, Adam and Eve gets in the guilt-blame game, you know. Uh, the woman you gave me, it was a guilt, you know, I was all right till I woke up and found myself married. <laughs> when I was single, my pockets used to jingle, you know. But, so the woman you, 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 so he blames God. And then he blames the woman, the woman you gave me, my wife, she made me do it. And then, of course, when God went to the woman, the woman said, but the devil made me do it. See? And because when God came to the devil, he didn't have a leg to stand on. So, you know, that was it. So it was a whole, whole guilt and blame game. And, you know, your kids do the same. Mine used to do the same. Where'd they get it from? You. So now the very fact that God was going to bring in a substitution death now, because they were under the death penalty. God killed an innocent animal and clothed them with coats of skin. Now, Adam and Eve could have said, God, hey, it's a bit of a bloody slaughterhouse religion, I heard one minister say. I like my fig leaf, and we can get a new one anytime it withers. But the very fact that they accepted the coats of skin and were clothed in the death of a substitute victim where body and blood sacrifice shows that they, by faith, they accepted the righteousness that was going to come through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! So throw away your fig leaves. Get rid of them. I don't give a fig. So how many got something out that verse? Okay, we won't do that on everyone. All right, coats of skin. First implied sacrifice. Then Abel. Genesis 4, 14. By faith, oh, that should be Hebrews, by the way. This, my computer's not converted yet. Hebrews, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Why did God accept Abel? Because between God and Abel was the blood and body of a sacrificial victim. And where did Abel get the faith from? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by a word from God. So Adam and Eve, mum and dad told Abel and Cain, well, we bombed out, we missed out there, we got in the fig leaf, and when God came in, we are dead meat. God said, in the day you eat, you'll surely die. We're still alive, but our death did take place. An innocent animal took our place, and we accepted the coats of skin. Cain rejected it. Now, people often say, well, Cain bought a good offering, but you see, Cain's offering was bloodless, and it was from a cursed earth. So he refused the way of faith, and 
he let the characteristics of Satan take hold of him because Cain was a murderer and a liar and the blood of the lamb rejecter. And he begins the long line of Cain rejectors, those who follow in the way of Cain. I follow in the way of Abel by faith. Amen? Altar of Noah. When Noah came out the ark, he built altars and altered, uh, an altar to the Lord and offered clean animals to God. Abraham, he was a man of the altar. He offered five sacrifices. I mean, you could spend hours on each of those. Five offerings Abraham offered, pointing to the five Levitical offerings. And then, uh, this is a marvelous thing. Uh, the last sacrifice that Abraham ever offered was the typical sacrifice of his son Isaac. After his son, he never again offered an animal sacrifice. And you may remember, of all I've said, it's like God said to Abraham, you are father, I want you to do typically with your only begotten son what I'm going to do actually with my, my only begotten son. So from Moses through to Jesus, there were the five Levitical offerings. Once Jesus, the only begotten son of God the Father, was offered, God no longer accepts animal sacrifices. Then from Moses to Jesus, look at the pictures you have here. The Passover lamb. And I mean, every, every one of these pictures is just filled uh, with so much truth. Uh, the Passover lamb, uh, they sprinkled the blood on the two side posts and on the lintel. In other words, there was a triune application of one blood. We might say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because it was the blood of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit involved in redemption. One blood the blood of God, Acts 20, 28, but a triune application of the blood. Wow, how awesome. The blood covenant book. When Moses came down from the mount, he took the blood and he sprinkled the people and the book. This is a blood sprinkled book. Please, please take this kindly, but uh, when the Methodist church was in existence many, many years ago, they tried to delete every him that John Wesley ever composed that had blood in it. It just about destroyed the hymn book. Because take the blood out, the life is in the blood. And this is a powerless book if you don't see the scarlet thread of blood atonement that runs from Genesis through Revelation. Can you say amen? amen. The life is in the blood. Wow, how awesome. A blood covenant book, the five offerings. Oh, hours of teaching in that. The red heifer. Well, and here today we hear that some in Jewry have got the red heifer ready for a rebuilt temple that God will never accept the body and blood of an animal sacrifice again. That's the biggest insult to Calvary and the Lord's table. Because when we take the Lord's table, this is my body, this is my blood. It points back to Calvary, but never again where we partake of animal sacrifices and animal blood. Amen? The high priest in his ministry and then the kinsman redeemer. So many pictures of the atonement. Now, let's go uh, to letter D for our last few, merge, uh, uh, few moments here. As you can see, there's so much here. So the work of Christ, the work that the Father has given me to do, I have finished the work. Necessity of the atonement, holiness of God against the sinfulness of man and the uh, sinless transgression of the law and the holiness of God and the love of God reconciled Calvary. Shadows of the atonement from Adam to Moses and from Moses to Jesus. And let's uh, finally go to letter D, the atonement theologically. Now I've just put down some uh, brief def definitions of the word words uh, here. But I want to... Uh, uh, just add, add, add a few thoughts here. I wonder, bro, if you could come up and do a little favor for me while I'm talking here. Take this. Now, you've got, you've got this uh, diagram or sort of similar and put it up there. But I still want to uh, draw your attention to something here. That means thank you, Fujinama Tuhan, in Indonesian. Okay. 
All right, now I've just given you, uh, we've only got a few moments here, but heavy, heavy theology here. When we look at the tabernacle, and you've got it on your diagram there, I think, okay, the whole of the tabernacle of Moses is a revelation of the grace of God. Let me say that. I have to move through this quickly here. But you just think, uh, uh, way, in, uh, way, way in here, so we have the brazen altar here, the shedding of blood. Then we have the brazen laver, the washing of water. Then the golden lampstand and the table show bread and then the altar of incense, then the Ark of the Covenant. Now, these two articles, the brazen altar and the Ark of the Covenant, they're connected particularly, and we want to talk about the Day of Atonement in a moment here. So the sacrifice was uh, 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 offered on the altar here, the body and blood of the victims. But the blood on the Day of Atonement was taken from the outer court into the holy place, into the most holy place, and sprinkled between the cherubim and on the blood-stained mercy seat. Now, you may remember, those of you who have read your Bible a few, a few times, remember when the ark was lost in the country of the Philipp Philistines, <laughs> uh, then as it came back, the men of Beth Shemesh, they looked into the ark and 50, well, it depends on your translation, but at least 70, some say 50,000, 70, but uh, dozens and dozens of people were slain. Now, why? Just a bit of gold, just a bit of wood overlaid with gold. But you see, here's the theological implications that we miss because we surface read the word. When they looked into the ark, they had to remove the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat was blood. So when they put aside the blood and put aside the blood-stained mercy seat, what did they look at? The Ten Commandments, the law. And the law works wrath. The law is a ministration of death. See, so if it hadn't been for the mercy seat and the blood-stained mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, God could never dwell amongst the people because when Moses came down from the mount with the first tables, he demonstrated to the people what they were doing, what they had done. Because while, while the commandments were in the making, they were also in the breaking. Thou should have no other gods before me. These are your gods, the golden calf festival, the rock festival. Don't make any graven image. So while the commandments are in the making, they're also in the breaking. Everybody get that? So Moses comes down with the first tables and demonstrates to them what they've done. You've broken the commandments. He had to go up, and it was only his intercession as mediatorial uh, work there that saved the nation. Then with the second tables, what happened to them? When he brought down the second tables, nobody ever saw them. They were put in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. Are you listening here? And under the blood. So when the men of Beth Shemesh wanted to curiously peek at the Ten Commandments, they put aside the blood-stained mercy seat and exposed themselves to wrath. Wow. So this whole structure of the tabernacle was a revelation of the grace of God. Now, I've just put down briefly, I'm going to have to uh, finish a bit here. So grace, the undeserved favor of God, we, we could extend that, but the undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God bestowed upon sinful men. The word redemption, to buy back out of the market, to purchase with a price out of the marketplace. Uh, the ransom, the price actually paid in the transition, uh, transic, transaction of redemption, price paid to release the slave. If you wanted, you know, I'd have to give you this. <laughs> okay, I'll try to condense that. Okay, substitution, to put in the place of another or in behalf of another. Uh, propitiation, to appease wrath, to render favorable the offering of a gift of sufficient value in order that the wrath of another might be appeased. Reconciliation, to make friends and bring together those who are at variance or at enmity. And then the atonement. Now, let me sort of bring it all together. Now, on your diagram somewhere... You should be able to put these, these words here. Where are we? What have we got on here? Is there anything on the other? Okay. 
Is it up there? Okay, oh, wonderful. Okay, put those first three words here. So down at the brazen altar, that's where the redemption took place. They were redeemed by blood. So redemption. And then what was the price, the actual price, the ransom? The blood and body of a sacrificial victim. That was the actual ransom. And then, of course, you imagine when the Israelite brings his animal there, what's he got to do? He lays his hands on the sacrifice, confesses his sins over there, and says, I'm, I'm guilty, this animal's innocent. I should die, but this animal's going to die in my stead. Substitution, it's there. Then, when you go into here, after the sacrifice, and see, the brazen altar was Calvary, the cross. That's where his sacrifice took place. But Jesus had to go through the heavens with his own blood. That's what the book of Hebrews is built on. And here's your last three words. Propitiation, ransom. Oh, I'm sorry, no. Propitiation, reconciliation, the atonement. Now let me finish with this. And there's much more could be said, but I recommend you to buy an excellent book on this, The Foundation Christian Doctrine, which gives full details. J.A. Cease, in your notes there, and this is the best definition because the word atonement, people have changed it, a lot of translation changed it to reconciliation, but it's an old English word, at one meant, to be made at one. And I think this is the best statement theologically I've ever seen. J.A. Cease, or Cease, uh, says, the atonement is the actual and official presentation of the blood of Jesus Christ at the throne of God by our great high priest. So on the great day of atonement, after the sacrifice had been made, the body was taken out the camp, the blood here, the high priest went in here within the veil and stood in front of the mercy seat and sprinkled the blood seven times. That was the atonement, the official presentation. And how did Jesus do it? On the cross, the altar, he died. His body was buried outside the city of Jerusalem, but Jesus ascended within the veil and presented his blood to the Father. That was the atonement, the official presentation of the blood of Jesus in heaven for us. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. For more in-depth teaching on the foundations of Christian doctrine, See the new online video teaching courses by Kevin Connor with over 60 lessons. Visit kevinconnor.org forward slash courses for details.